Hi, this is Pastor Paul J. Chandran, and you're listening to Life Church Castle Hill Podcast. We encourage you to check out our IDMC Institute, which is our online Bible college, and you can look up college.idmc.com.au. I want to share with you the exciting opportunity that we have every Thursday to come before the Lord, open the pages of Scripture, and allow the Holy Spirit to tutor our hearts to build depth in our lives intentionally. People of God, we are the people of the Word of God. One of the core things we believe is that when we open the pages of Scripture, we not only read the Word of God, but we also encounter the God of the Word. I invite you every Thursday for Transformation Thursdays with Pastor Paul, where we're going to build depth together and study the Scriptures and allow the Holy Spirit to build depth intentionally in our lives. Not only that, on Sundays, every Sunday, we're going to study the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a timeless material. It is, it is a philosophy of life. And especially in this season where we need to examine the worldview we have, the value system we depend upon, and what guides us, what gives us a compass in our lives, we need to examine it in light of the scriptures. What better book to do than the book of Ecclesiastes? It is the reflections of a wise man. And he was the richest man, the most famous king. And he wrote this book at this old age. And he concludes how life ought to be lived. And you and I, we want to examine it and allow the Holy Spirit to build depth in our lives in this season. God bless you. I look forward to seeing you not only on Thursday at our Bible study, but also on Sundays. Join us together as a family and invite your friends. God bless you. Shall we give the Lord a clap offering this morning? Hallelujah. It is always a joy and a privilege to come into your homes with the Word of God. It is such a joy. Praise God. On this uh, Anzac Day weekend, we want to thank the Lord for all that God has done in this beautiful land and for all the sacrifices that men and women who are in the service have done for us. I want you to just lift up your hands before the Lord and we will just pray a blessing upon them. Father, we thank you for all the men and women that had laid down their life for the cause of freedom in this, na in this nation that we enjoy. Today, mighty God, we pray your blessing upon them. We pray that you put a hedge of protection upon their families. And I pray that you will be their provider in all their families. And Lord, we pray for their children and for their future that you will bless them, Lord. We thank you for the privilege of being in this wonderful land that we can call home. Lord, we pray that your blessing be upon our leaders of this land and upon all the governmental leaders, upon all the medical workers. Bless them, Father. Thank you for this wonderful privilege that we enjoy in this nation. And we acknowledge that all good things come from you. So we give you all the glory, the praise, and the honor. Today, open our eyes to hear the word of God and give us listening ears and a heart that is willing to apply your word. So we thank you, Holy Spirit. Be our teacher. In Jesus' name and the people of God said, amen and amen. One more time. Shall we give the Lord a clap offering? Come on. Hallelujah. Praise God. Today, I want to talk on the title of Beware of Drivenness in the Face of Emptiness. We're going to do the exposition on chapter 4 of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, over the past month, we have been studying the book of Ecclesiastes. And I'm thankful to the Lord that we, God had given us the privilege to be able to do this in this season of quarantine and self-isolation. 
Now, I don't know how you spent your quarantine time. I had uh, a haircut done in the past few weeks. I had two wisdom tooth pulled out, and that pain lasted for almost three weeks. I tell you, in, in the midst of it, we started the Thursday Bible study and Sunday. I thank God for the grace that he gives through every season and in every situation. Hallelujah. So as we study this book of Ecclesiastes, it's only 12 chapters. And I know that each time when we study this on a weekend, we can read the whole entire 12 chapters prior so that we can glean rich and dig deep in the word of God. Now today we're going to study on the book of Ecclesiastes from chapter 4. The chapter 4 can be divided into two sections. One, it talks about what drives us in life. And secondly, what guards us in life. So this chapter 4 is talking about a driven society, a consumeristic driven society. And Solomon, in, in, later on in his life, as he reflects upon how people live life, and he reflects upon a society that they live in, the drivenness that is found within mankind, a drivenness for significance, drivenness to be someone and do something. And what, what is the result of these drivenness? And he ends up writing a whole chapter for us. So today, that's what we're going to meditate. But I want to take a step back and look at the overview of uh, what we have studied so far. Because in any biblical preaching, you want to lay the foundation. You want to lay the strong context. And in this case, from chapter 1 to chapter 3, we have covered it over the last three weeks. But I want to give you just a brief overview. Chapter 1, verse 1, he introduces himself as the preacher. Chapter 1, verse 2, he says he is uh, his thesis on life. And his observation of life is vanity of vanity. In other words, everything is utterly meaningless. It's like a vapor that disappears. And then he talks about a fourfold futility that he finds in chapter 1 and chapter 4. There are fourfold futility. The first futility is the futility of work. We talked about it from the first 11 verses where he talks about uh, everything is going around in circles. Nothing seems to have any ultimate meaning or purpose or significance. So the futility of work. The second one, in the later on in the first chapter, he talks about the futility of wisdom. In other words, the wisdom of this world is short-sighted in that sense. Why? Because it's only for the temporal world. So therefore, it is short-sighted in its, therefore, it leads to frustration. Therefore, it's a futility of wisdom. Chapter 2 begins by him talking about all the explorations he has done in his life. He had taken the road to enlightenment. He had taken the road to enrichment. And he has taken the road to an entertainment. And he talks about all that. And ultimately, he says it's futile. So in the first 11 verses, he he talks about the futility of greatness, great works, great wealth, great pleasure, and great women, great wine, all those things. He says at the end of the day, it was futile. It didn't add much to his life. Fourthly, he comes towards the end of chapter two and he says, life itself is futile. Why? Because what happens to animals happens to man. What happens to animals and man, they both end up dying in the end and leaving behind all that they labored for and all that they have accumulated. So as a result, he says, life itself is futile. Now, then he comes and he says towards the end of chapter 2, you have to put God into the equation of life for you to make sense of life. 
Then he enters chapter 3. Chapter 3 is a beautiful picture of the seasons and times that we need to have understanding over. So chapter 3 can be divided into two things. One, that God is the author of seasons and times in our lives. In other words, it is God who initiates the times that you are appointed for you. Times of birth or death, everything in between. God has an appointment for you and that God alone can author. Hallelujah. Secondly, he also goes on to say, God is the assessor of our life. In other words, he's the ultimate judge and he will judge not the, not the rich and the poor. He will not just judge whether you are achieving something or didn't achieve much. He judges between the righteous and the wicked. So finally, he comes down to say, pay attention to not how long you live, but how well you lived. See, you and I, we need to pay attention to wisdom here. He says there is an appointed time, there's an appropriate time, and you have available time. But how do you live life in this available time will make sense when one day you will give an account of your life to God. So therefore, he concludes by saying, life is a stewardship. It is a sacred responsibility. You've got to live life before God, with God, in God, and one day you're going to give an account for what you did in time that God had graciously given you. Now that is the first three chapters. Hallelujah. Let me take a break. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Now we're thankful to the Lord for the overview of the first three chapters. Now, as we enter into chapter four, I want you to put on this lens. He's talking about the society in which men live, mankind live. And in this society, there is such a drivenness that he finds. Now, whenever you are studying this book, you have to put two lenses. You have to examine the worldview that Solomon is talking about with these two lenses. What are those two lenses? Number one, life under the sun. He will always mention this phrase, life under the sun. What is life under the sun? It is this materialistic view of life. It is this physical, material world that we live in. This consumeristic society, this driven society. That's a life under the sun. But then there is a biblical worldview that you and I, we need to embrace. What is that biblical worldview? Life under the hand of God. In other words, life under the sun is not how you're meant to live. You're meant to live looking beyond the sun and to look at the creator who created you for a purpose. He redeemed you for a purpose and he has a plan and a purpose for you on this world while you're living here and while you're alive. So this is important for us to consider. Two lenses, one is life under the hand of God and life under the sun. So with that in mind, let's dig into chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. Now, the preacher always concludes what he's about to say. So I'm going to jump to verse 2 of chapter 2 and verse 2 and verse 3 because in these two verses, he concludes the summary of what he sees happen in the lives of people in this driven society. So Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 2 and verse 3. The Bible says, And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. <laughs> Pause for a moment. He's saying, I want to congratulate the dead. Why? Because they are better off than the people who are alive. That's what he's concluding. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. See, under the sun worldview, the materialistic way of life, materialistic view of life, he says, it is better for a man to not even be born 
and it's better for a person who's already dead than the person who is alive. Why? The reason why he says that is because he saw something in verse 1 that he wants you to understand. Why is he so cynic? Why is he so, such a cynic about life? Why is this cynicism in his life? Because under the sun, he examines life and he concludes it is better that you were never even born. And if you're, you're already dead, I congratulate you. The reason is because in verse 1, he establishes what had taken place. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. I want you to pay attention to a couple of things here as I dig into the scripture. Again I saw. That's a phrase where he is taking time to reflect upon life. In other words, he took a break, he comes back, opens his journal, and he's reflecting and recording his reflection. And now he says, again, I saw. What did he see? He saw the oppressions that are done under the sun. That means there are people who are oppressing, and then there are people who are oppressed. And then he says, behold, the tears of the oppressed. Now, what is the difference between again, I saw, and then the word behold. You know, again I saw is a word for I reflected. And then suddenly I realized. Now this is where, that light bulb moment. He says, I saw the oppression under, that happens under the sun. And then I realized, what did I realize? The tears of the oppressed. In other words, there are people that are being oppressed and their cheeks are filled with tears. And this tears, he says, there was no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power. In other words, the powerful are oppressing the less powerful. The rich are oppressing the poor. The foreign powers are oppressing the land. And so when he was looking at this and he realizes there was no one to comfort them, that means they are helpless and powerless. See, in Solomon's times, the oppression came in two forms. Let me give this to you. Number one, it came through foreign powers that invaded your land. They came, they destroyed all the uh, harvest, they took all your sons and daughters as slaves, and they leave you helpless, powerless. The oppression of foreign powers. The second kind of oppression is, within the land, there are rich that will oppress the poor. In other words, that you don't pay them, you don't look after the widows in the land, you don't look after the children of the land, you, you just kind of uh, um, oppress them in that way. And the Bible says here, they had tears rolling down, there was tears of the oppressed, but there was no one to comfort them under the sun. Now this is where you and I, we need to ask this question. Does this apply to us today in the modern society that we live in? Can I humbly say this? We don't have that much in, in Australia being a big island. We, 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 by God's grace, we don't have the foreign oppression or we don't have the rich oppressing the poor because the poor can sue them in court, right? In other words, that, that kind of oppression is not what we are talking about in modern society. But that doesn't mean there is no tears of the oppressed. Listen to me carefully. How does this apply to a society of the first world, the Western world that we are living in today? This is how it applies. Do you know there are tears of the oppressed even in our midst? Let me give you some. You know, one day I was reading through 
called uh, uh, ABS. As a pastor, I look at the Australian Bureau of Statistics just to get a gauge on the community, where we live, what we're doing. Do you know that in our own society, there are so many that are oppressed? If you have time to just pray through these things, pray for this. There are people who are so lonely in this time. There are people who are going through domestic violence and because of self-isolation and because of quarantine, they are stuck in an environment. They are helpless. They are powerless. Do you know there are children who are uh, caught, caught between parents who are divorced and are living in two different homes and therefore in this season, there is a oppression. There is the tears of the oppressed. Do you know that our society, even though with all the facilities and all the, all, the, all the rich things that we can enjoy as a nation, do you know how many go hungry even in this land? Do you know how many are struggling and they are going through poverty? And why? Because the cause of it all, the Bible says, it's the drivenness in the society. Let me give you some of the things that I looked at. One was the suicide rate in Australia. Do you know that around 1,000 people think of suicide each day in Australia. Out of that thousand, about 250 put a plan in place every day. And out of that 250, about 30 people attempt, and that means they actually worked on it and did it. And out of that, seven suicides happen every single day where somebody dies. You know how many like that? Every single day? Wow. That's more than what coronavirus or this pandemic has taken in Australia today. That's more than what happens on a long weekend when people drive crazy a long distance. You know, more deaths happen with suicide than with any other means. It it's actually is said that men account for three out of every five deaths by suicide and making suicide the 10th leading cause of death among males. Why is this? There is an oppression that is within not without, not a foreign oppression, not an oppression that comes from outside, but an oppression that they feel on the inside. And this oppression, the tears of the oppressed, not many people pay attention. That is what Solomon says. In a driven society, you keep running after certain things. You keep running, you keep running, but beware of the emptiness that you will face one day. Beware of the drivenness in the face of emptiness because all this running around, all this consumeristic society, this materialism that we are bought into, can I humbly say this? It truly doesn't satisfy. It leaves a huge void. Divorce rates are high. Do you know in the year 2012 in Australia, that's the last statistics they have on that website, and it says 49,917 divorces were granted in Australia. 49,000. Out of that, people between the age of 40 to 44 had the highest percentage of divorces granted. Ask yourself, 40 to 44. You know, I shared with you earlier in, in, in the way I look at life. There are five stages. The first stage of life is where you are struggling. The second stage of life is where you're surviving. The third stage of life is where you're stabilizing. Fourth stage of life is where you're succeeding. And the fifth stage of life is where you are driven towards significance. Now listen to me. When you're in your 20s and your 30s, you're trying, you're struggling, you're surviving, you're stabilizing. Why? You're struggling to get a career, you're an education, a career, a pathway, a settled, uh, buy a house and do all that. Get the mortgage, do all that you need to do. But by the time you've crossed path the 30s and you enter into the 40s, you're no longer struggling or surviving or stabilizing in life. You are actually someone who's already succeeding. 
then why is the divorce rate so high? Can I humbly say the reason why is because we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't know. The mindset, the philosophy of this world is that we are so driven that the tears of the oppressed, guess who are the people who pay the price for it? The children, the next generation are the ones who are left oppressed. The tears of the oppressed. I remember when my children came from, pre, uh, from the primary school, even my youngest one one day came back and he said, uh, Dad, one of my friend's family have broken up. They, uh, they are going through divorce. At that young age, they don't even understand what that term means. But people are going through that crisis. I, gotta, I want you to understand this. The tears of the oppressed still exist today. And many are suffering in silence. I can go on and list so many things. But can I humbly say this? The tears of the oppressed is this church. It is the wounded hearts. It's the broken lives. It is the tears that are flowing down a cheek of a young girl, a young boy, or even a married man and a married woman. When the world looks at them, thinks they have good career, they have good houses, they have great holidays, they have all these externalities, all these things that measures them to be successful, but yet there is an oppression that goes within that no one notices, but only God notices. That's what the wise man says here. I took a step back from life. I reflected upon what is going on. And I realized in the impact of this driven society, this consumeristic society is, it leaves people oppressed, but there is no one to comfort them. Why? Because if you're hanging around with blind and you're blind, no one can help you. If you're hanging around with lame and everybody is lame, no one can help you. Why? Because we have to look above the sun to someone who has the power and the ability and the willingness and the grace to do something about it. Hallelujah. You and I, we need to come back to evaluating our worldview. So here, the drivenness. He says, beware of the drivenness in the face of emptiness. I want to talk to you from this passage, three things that I find as roots of this drivenness. This is what Solomon concluded. Three things that drive people. Three things that are within us, in our roots, in our society, within our hearts that causes this drivenness. What are those? Number one, it is the driven by competitiveness. In other words, there is a sense of competition and there is a drivenness by competitiveness. Look at verse number four. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 4 says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Pause there. And I want you to pay attention to some of the verses, words here. He says all toil, meaning all kinds of work, and all skill in work. In other words, these are the areas where you are skilled. In other words, you have greater capacity. You can do it with excellence. You've got some sort of achievement and he says, all work and all achievements come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. The problem he concludes is deep down in the hearts of people, there is envy. It comes from a drive. What is driving them? There is a sense of competition and that competitiveness is caused by the root issue is actually envy. Now, let me pause there. Let me explain a couple of things. Competition in general is not 
unhealthy. There is healthy competition, and then there are unhealthy competition. You know, when you are competing in a race to be number one, you exercise, you do what you need to do, and you run. In those kind of athletic competitions, competition is healthy. Like even this, this week in the news, we want two airlines in this country so that there will be competition that is healthy, so the prices of the air travel, air ticket can be lower. So we need competition to keep the balance. But the kind of competition he's talking about is the unhealthy kind of competition that is motivated by envy. That means he compares one another. He compares with his neighbor. And now he says, my neighbor has it. I need to have even better. In other words, this is the catching up with the Joneses. Remember that? Catching up with the Joneses. In other words, you look around what others are doing and you want to do even better. And you want to experience life even better. That is the kind of comparison he is talking about. You know, a story was told of two boys who were talking about their father. And they were arguing whose father is better than the other. The older one said, my father is a pastor who can preach for one hour with any topic. The younger one says, my father is a pastor who can talk for one hour without any topic. The older one then said, stupid, we are both brothers. We have the same father. You know, <laughs> we compare from young, there's always comparison. I want you to listen to me carefully. The reason why it is, is because we are living in a society where we call rat race. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why do they call it rat race? Why do they use that animal rat? You know, among all the animals, rat is the only creature that will eat its own kind in order to succeed. That's why it's called rat race. And if you're part of a rat race, guess what? Even if you become number one, you're the number one rat. And that is what people want. People want to be known, to be recognized, to be significant. And therefore, this is what they do. Someone commented about their life like this. We lick the boots of those above us and trample on the faces of those below us as we climb up the social ladder. Isn't that right? We curry favor with the ones that are above us and then we oppress the ones below us so that we can become something, we can be someone. That sense of competition is driving people. Do you know how many families have been broken up? Because even between husband and wife, there was no cooperation. Instead, there were contention. There was a competition, a sense of pride and envy. Between siblings, families have been broken up because siblings... Look at each other. Look at the kind of career they have. Look at the kind of person they married into, the family that they married into. Look at all these things and they compare and then they have a sense of drivenness as a result. This is unhealthy. Story was told of uh, two friends that were hiking together and uh, suddenly a tiger appeared in the woods and uh, they started to run. But then suddenly one of the friends stopped and he took from his bag a track shoes and changed his hiking shoes to a track shoes. So his other friend looked at him and said, don't be stupid. You cannot outrun tiger. To that the friend says, I don't need to outrun tiger. I only need to outrun you. This is the kind of society we live in. Dog eat, dog world. 
you and I, we need to take stock. Life under the sun is a driven by competition. You got to know that you need to take advantage of others and you want to be the number one. The second thing he says is driven by compulsiveness. Look at this in verse 4, uh, look, verse 5 and verse 6. Let's go to verse 6 first. In verse 6, he says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. He says here, Better is a handful of quietness. I want you to pay attention to the words he uses. One hand full of quietness. What is the quietness he's talking about? The quietness he's talking about is the inward condition of your soul. In our church, we call it the restedness, the restedness of heart, the restedness of your soul. Isn't that right? A composure that you need to have on the inside. What is the absence of that restedness? The absence of that restedness, if you study in our first semester, you will learn this term, churning within. That there is a churning on the inside. In other words, many people would express different things about life. They say, there's a knot in my stomach. There is something churning. There is a restlessness in my soul. Here he says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. What is he saying? He's saying this, better it is for you to have one hand of quietness rather than two hands full of toil. In other words, this is the compulsiveness going into an extreme. That means work is everything for a person. Hardworking. They, they have to be, they, you know, in life there are two kinds of people. There are hardworking and there are hardly working. You need to understand the difference. There are people who are hardworking and there are people who are hardly working. Here he talks about the ones that are hardworking and working all the time to their own detriment. In other words, there is no sense of rest. There's no sense of balance. There is no sense of withdrawing from the rat race so that they can have a time to spend time with family, to spend time with the, the Lord, and to grow and develop themselves. In other words, they're just running, running, running. Here he says, this is the kind of society we live in, the society that there is no balance. People are always driven. It's like, uh, if you know, I remember... Years ago, I brought my son, David, to, when he was five years old, to Orlando, Florida. And we went to Disney World. And my, the Lord provided for it. It is a miraculous story. My wife uh, had a phone call. Let me give you a background of that story. Since it's, I've already started it, I might have so finished it. My wife one day got a phone call from an American salesperson. And in that phone call, the person was selling a holiday in to the amount of 7,000 US something, a 14-day holiday in Orlando, Florida, Disney World, with all the, uh, everything included. Now, that, my wife um, was just on the phone with them for nearly an hour. So at the end of that hour, the salesperson's manager came on the phone and said, hello, uh, we, you have kept my salesman on the phone for nearly an hour. That means you must be really interested in this holiday. But why are you not purchasing it? My wife said, sorry. Uh, budget issue. So what are you willing to pay? She said $250 US. Cut the long story short. The guy said, yes, we will give it to you. Now, just a few weeks prior to that, we had been watching a VHS video and in that video, towards the end, there was an advertisement for Orlando, Florida, uh, Disney World. 
and my youngest, my, my son, at that uh, five-year-old, um, at that time maybe he was four, four and a half something, he looked at that and he said, I want to go. And we prayed as a family that God will one day provide and, and fulfill that desire. And the same, within a few months, this phone call comes, $250, we were able to go and have that holiday. Because all the flight, everything was taken care of by Qantas points. Now, cut, I'm cutting the long story short just to give you this. I remember the time when he went in. Now, from morning till evening, you are in this place. And by the time this little toddler is already exhausted and his eyes are sleepy, but yet there is at 9 o'clock or 8 o'clock, they have this uh, uh, parade. Oh, my goodness, you can't miss the parade. Otherwise, you won't grow up. You know, so a little kid wants to keep his eyes open and tries so, so hard working, you know, to keep his eyes open so that he can get everything in. Now, that is the state of the human soul. We don't want to miss anything. We don't want to miss out on anything. And therefore, we are driven, driven to the point where we compulsively, we work all the way. It becomes an addiction to our soul. You know, I was reading about a story of a man who, had, uh, who was very rich. But one day, uh, when, he, when, he, when he became a multimillionaire, uh, when people came to stay in his house, when guests came to stay in his house, all the guest room had phones. But these are the phones where you have to insert a coin to make the phone call. The kind where he's like, even that little thing, he doesn't want to miss out. I want you to listen to me carefully. That's the kind of society that Solomon is talking about, where they are so driven. You know, it speaks of this current scenario. You know, every time a couple gets married, when I do a counseling for them and I'm praying for them, one of the things I pray for them is that they don't go and over-mortgage themselves. We are living in a society where people will borrow too much so that they can buy the bigger, the better. You know, the word mortgage the first word in that, it's the word in the Latin is for dead. The word mort, from where you get the word mortuary, from where you get the word mortal, from where you get the word mort, right? Post-mortem, everything's to do with the death. And you get, and you sign a huge debt. Guess what gives the, that, that great, uh, um, the greatest pr pressure that Australians face, where I live, the greatest pressure that people face around us in our neighborhood is mortgage crisis because they're over leveraged, over in debt. I want you to listen to me carefully. This is come driven by a sense of uh, compulsiveness. But at the same time, there are people who live on the other spectrum. What is the other spectrum? What is the other extreme? The other extreme is in verse 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 5, the Bible says, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Solomon looks at both extremes. He says one is an industrious man who takes it to the rat race. He wants to be number one. But then he also looks at life and he says there's an idle man who hardly works and he wants to ease his life. In other words, he doesn't want to do anything that brings any kind of discomfort. He wants to enjoy life and rest. Look at this. A fool folds his hands and eats his own, sh own flesh. Twice in the book of Proverbs. I don't have this on my screen, but I'm going to give it to you. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 10. 
And Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 33, he repeats the same line. Proverbs is written by King Solomon as well. And this is his reflection. And this is what he says. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of hands to rest. Poverty will visit you. In other words, the folding of hands is to say, I don't want to engage in any work. This is the other extreme. One extreme is you overwork. And work is everything. And you find your significance in work. Your work has become your idol. There is no room for anything or anyone. But on the other hand, is he says, I've checked out of society. I don't want to be in the rat race anymore. I dropped out of the race. And now I just fold my hands and I do nothing. Can I humbly say this? Even that, in the eyes of God, under the sun, is a wasted life. Listen to this. Why? Because he says he eats his own flesh. In other words, you will get ruined. Your earthly life, not just in the earthly life it's ruined, but one day when you stand before God to give an account for your life, you will also be ruined. Because when your work is being tested with fire, everything will burn. So here he says, don't be too lazy and don't be too workaholic. There needs to be, but this is the drivenness of the society. There's a compulsion. Do you know when people dropped out of the rat race, it happened in society. In Japan, when the young children were growing up and saw the materialistic lifestyles of their families, the parents, they dropped out of it. They embraced a gothic lifestyle, gothic dress and whatnot. And then they, they just hang around in the shopping malls and, and ask each other, what's going on? In the 1960s, the hippie movement happened. What happened? They checked out of the rat race. They, they, they just wanted to take their tambourines and their guitars and go to the beach and sing song and then just while away time. But I want you to listen to me carefully. It is not about disengaging from society. It is not, Solomon is not advocating that. What is he saying? He's saying there needs to be a balance between these two. But he looks at life and he observes life and he says that people are drawn to extremes. Either they are overworking or they are just ejecting out of them, uh, themselves out of the rat race and they drop out. And he says neither serves the purposes of God. I want you to look at the next one. The third thing he says is a drivenness by covetousness. This is in verse 7 and verse 8 of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. A drivenness by consumerism. There is a covetousness. There's a consumeristic desires that drive them. Look at this. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. He says, you have no one to leave anything behind, but yet you're working so hard. And then he says, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. I want you to underline this. This is at the bottom. This is the truth. This is the bottom line. The materialistic, consumeristic society is driven by what? Our eyes are never satisfied with what we have. And here he says, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Your eyes are never satisfied. In other words, you continually want to have more, more, more. Someone asked a very rich man, you're already so rich. What more do you want? What more will satisfy you? He said a little bit more. You and I, we need to pay attention to this. 
That is the human society we're living in, the consumeristic society, the materialistic society that is driven by competition, that is driven by a culture of compulsiveness, either go to the extreme of being overworking without any balance in life or completely checked out and complacent life. And then he says there's a sense of covetousness that we want more and more and more and therefore our eyes are never satisfied. Do you know, when I, when I reflect upon life, you know, I grew up in India, and uh, India, when, we, when, when I was finishing my university in India, all the IT companies like Microsoft came into India, IBM, Microsoft, and they were taking young, trained engineers from India because there was a crisis that was going on in the world at that time called them the millennial bug, the millennium bug. Y2K was a problem. Y2K, when the clock turns, when the calendar becomes 2000, the year 2000, everything will collapse unless we fix it. So they had a bug they needed to fix. And so there was a lot of young people that were taken and they all went all over the four corners of the world. So Indian engineers, IT professionals work all over the world. And we are thankful to the Lord for this opportunity. But can I humbly say this? Today, those individuals, that means what I'm trying to say is, society suddenly in the 2000s, in the last 20 years, the children, that means the generation that was born in that and then educated and released, they became the new rich. In other words, they were earning every month what their parents' generation earned in one year. What their parents earned in a whole year, they earned in one month. Now, ask yourself this. It's not even 10 times better than your ancestors. It is actually far more than that. That means you have all this wonderful privilege and opportunity. Suddenly, you've got options in life. You have make choices in life. You can buy bigger and better things and experiences. Now, ask yourself this one fundamental question. Has that satisfied you? The truth is, it hasn't. Why? Are we better off because we are earning better than our parents? Actually, to say, no. Why? Because we looked after the external, but we haven't guarded the internal. Something within hasn't changed. That eyes are never satisfied. That drivenness in society is still causing so much chaos. I want you to listen to me carefully. You know, uh, Paul Harvey, when he wrote a book, he gave a beautiful illustration I want to share with you. It is about an Eskimo, how an Eskimo kills a wolf. This is how it is. An Eskimo will take a knife and coat the knife, coat the blade with animal blood. And then he will let it freeze. And then he will put another layer until the entire blade is coated with a thick layer of frozen blood. Then he takes this knife and buries the knife with the handle in the snow and the blade exposed. In the night, the wolf will smell its way to the blood. Take one lick and another lick and another lick. And as his crave for blood intensifies with every lick, the wolf will begin to lick more and more vigorously. Blinded and driven by its greed, the wolf does not recognize the taste of its own blood mixed with the blood of the blade 
until the next morning and then it is found bled to death in the snow. In other words, it's licking, licking, licking until it doesn't recognize that it's licking its own blood because its own blood is being cut off, cut into pieces by the blade. Listen to me carefully. That's the observation of Solomon. When he looks at life, he says, you have a drivenness with a sense of competition, with a sense of compulsiveness, and then a sense of covetousness because you live in a driven society that doesn't take stock of life. I want you to pause and remind you why we are studying this. Because you and I, we are living in a society that is so driven. People never take time to evaluate the kind of life they are living in. You know, many times parents will have this uh, idea. No, I'm doing this for the betterment of my family. Can I humbly say this? More than the toys you give to your children, they treasure you. You are their treasure. One day you'll recognize that. One day when they leave you and go far away from you, you'll recognize they did not want the toys. They needed time with you. That's what they needed. And when there's relationships that are distancing, that's when you realize, wow, nothing satisfies. Those gadgets did not satisfy. It is the person that they wanted. Let me remind you why we are studying this. We're studying this because there are tears of the oppressed that are happening even today. And it's happening because of the drivenness that we find in society. The drivenness of covetousness. The drivenness of compulsiveness. And the drivenness of competition. So what is the solution then? The solution is what Paul, uh, what Solomon will write. <laughs> I'm still on Thursday night. <laughs> the, the solution is what happens on, in the next part of the chapter. And he says, what will guard you? I tell you what will guard you. He gives you two wisdom remedies that is found in the, in the next uh, part of the text. Let's go to verse <clears throat> Turn to your neighbor and say, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. <clears throat> the second part of the text, the Bible says, in verse 9 and all the way to verse 16, we're going to study that. But I want to take a moment to just give you this briefly. There is a drivenness within. But what is the remedy? And Solomon says in his observation, he finds at least two remedies, wisdom principles that we need to apply in our lives. Firstly, I want you to go to verse 6 first. Verse 6 actually talks about better is a handful, <clears throat> excuse me, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil. Why doesn't he compare one handful of quietness and one handful of toil? That's what he's trying to say. But he, in the first part of the sermon, I said to you, that phrase he uses because he wants you to understand the exaggeration that how people are compelled, compulsive. There's a compulsion on the inside to overwork, to accumulate more. But the answer is also found here. Better is a handful. In other words, it's better for you to have a little and be content than have more and be contention and have contention. Listen to this. So I want to give you a principle. Write this down. Contentment is better than contention. Contentment is better than contention. You know, when the when you, more you accumulate, the more you worry about life, the more you worry about losing them. And that's why he says contentment is better. Isn't that what the Bible says? 
When you examine the life under the hand of God, that's what the Bible says. Look at Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 16 and 17. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than a treasure and trouble with it. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than a treasure and trouble with it. Look at the next one. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. In other words, a poor man eating a dinner with just herbs and there is love around the table is better than all the fattened ox you can have. In other words, you can have a lavish meal together, but there is hatred. There is no love in that family. What a contrast. And I want you to think about this. Contentment is a great gain, the Bible says. Paul, when he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6 to verse 10, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Why? For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world, but we have food and clothing. With these, we will be content. How many of you are content with just food and clothing in our lives? And the Bible says here in verse 9 of that, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Now, this is the people who are subscribing to quick, get quick, rich, right? Get rich, quick schemes. And he says, they fall into temptation to a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Every kind of evil. The, at the core of it is always a love of money. Money itself is not evil, but the love for money is. And here the Bible says, because of that, some have wandered away because they crave money. They wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Listen to me carefully. What is the principle here? What is the remedy here? What is the solution to a driven society, a consumeristic, materialistic society? That is driven by a sense of competition and compulsiveness and covetousness. The Bible's answer is you live under the hand of God with contentment. There is a wisdom of contentment with the little that God provides. Oh, hallelujah. I'm thankful to the Lord for the grace that he has shown my wife and I over the last 20 years. And everything that we have by the grace of God is by him. I tell my children all the time that I came into this country absolutely nothing. In the year 1998, my parents gave me $100 and sent me away from India to Singapore to study. And when I was in Singapore, the very first weekend, I took that $100, bought $20 worth of train ticket, which is the MRT card in Singapore. And I had $80 in my pocket. And in that $80, I went to a Sunday morning service. That's the first time I'm using that MRT card, go to church, and I'm there in the first service. That's the first weekend. I arrived there on a Friday. That's the Sunday. And the Lord spoke to me to empty my pocket and gave, give that $80 on that offering. That day, I, I kind of said to the Lord, Lord, I can give you 10%, but not more. But I knew in my heart the Lord arrested that conviction, give. And I emptied that pocket, came back to my seat, and I was weeping. The Bible says, give cheerfully. I gave, crying. But later on, I was comforted. The Bible does say, you can sow in tears. Hallelujah. Doesn't matter what you feel, you obey the Lord. 
I obeyed the Lord. And that day the Lord gave me a promise. From this day, I am your sponsor. In other words, I will look after you. I will provide for you. And I can vouch for this over the last 22 years in my life. From that day till today, everything that I have is by the grace of God. And God has always been so faithful in blessing us with what we need. I'm thankful to the Lord. And this is one thing you and I, we need to pay attention to. Are we willing to live with what God provides? Or do we have that desire that to go and grab something? See, we, we need to take stock of every aspect of our lives. There was a time when the Lord spoke very clearly to my heart. I want you to go and start looking for a home to purchase. I went around and started looking for a house to buy. And suddenly there was a, um, there was a, there was a sense because the Lord had given us a promise from Psalm 84 verse 3. Even a sparrow has found her home, a place where she'll bring forth her young, a place near the altar. And through that promise, the Lord spoke very specifically, I will provide you a house. And in that season of our lives, when my wife became pregnant with our first child, I went to the bank and I said, I need a loan. They asked me, where do you work? What do you do? At that time, no church had employed me and I had no work and I had no money, but I was serving the Lord. But this is where I couldn't prove anything. But cut the long story short, God moved supernaturally and a loan was approved and given. And I went before God and I said, Lord, this is what you have provided. Now you provide me the house with this. We searched high and low and behold, there was a house that the Lord said, this is the place near the altar. It was right where our church is in Sydney. And in that same street, the Lord provided a place. And when I got that house, it was quite high price. They were asking at least another 40% more than what I had in my hand. But I knew with all my heart that I can't go beyond what God had given me. So I went before the Lord and I said, Lord, this is what you have provided. If this is the one, you will provide. You know what God did? The seller reduced the price. The real estate agent was so surprised. If this is the price he would sell, even I would buy it. But God is a good God. He reserves for you. Now what I'm saying is, learn to live in contentment with what God provides. The reason is, when you allow the Lord to be your provider, and if there's contentment in your heart, there will always be joy and gratitude in your life. That's why one of the things that my church family knows very, <laughs> they know this. All our testimonies, they know why. Because we recount telling them because we taste the goodness of God together. Hallelujah. Shall we give the Lord a clap offering? Come on. We need contentment. And contentment is better than contention. The second principle I want to share with you from this text is this. He says here, cooperation is better than competition. Look at this. In verse 9 to verse 12, we're going to read this together. Verse 9 to verse 12, he says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Two are better than one, for they have good reward for their toil. For if they fail, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, if you're getting married and you want to use this text for marriage... <laughs> Many times pastors preach this text for weddings. 
Even though Solomon did not write this for weddings. Otherwise, how would you explain a cord of three? Two, I understand. Husband and wife. Cord of three. What is that? That's the mother-in-law pastor. No. <laughs> okay. I. <laughs> what is the cord of three? No, we will get, come to that. But what's he talking about? In the whole context, he's talking about reflection on life. He says, cooperation is better than competition. He is talking about the wisdom of living in community. Firstly, he talked about the wisdom of contentment. Here he talks about the wisdom of community. Do you know, when, you, when, when, you, when, when I was young, growing up in India, and I know many of you who, who grew up in Asia, you have this, um, when, you, when you come from, uh, uh, it was almost like a village, isn't it? Towns are not that big. City was not even that crowded. So every, when you're living in a neighborhood, people know who you are. People kind of look after one another. There is a sense of community. And in fact, in the, in the previous generation, they had extended families living together under one roof. That means the children growing up had uncles, aunties looking after them. They also had grandparents, grand, uh, all the granduncles and aunties all looking after them. In other words, there was a sense of communal living. There was a sense of community. And that is, that's, there's a wisdom in it. But in the driven society, Solomon says, we are so withdrawn from it. Now, how much more we have done in the year 2020? We're so isolated. We are such a nucleus family now. There's only one unit. And he says, when you are so alone and separated, it is not good. Because who would you turn to for wisdom? And here in this case, he says the cooperation that you have in a sense of community is better than competing with one another. Complement each other rather than competing. And he says this is the reason why it's a remedy when you're living in community. And for us people of God, how wonderful it is when God redeems us. Listen to me carefully. When God redeems you, he doesn't leave you as an orphan. He puts you in his family. Hallelujah. There's a beautiful verse in Psalm that says, God places the solitary in families. How wonderful it is. He takes you from the world, he redeems you, and he places you in a community. That's why you and I, we belong to a God who loves family. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, together. The same manner, you and I, we have spiritual fathers, spiritual mothers, spiritual brothers and sisters, spiritual children that we give birth to and we nurture and we look after. That's why God places importance on community. You know, even this past uh, few weeks, there has been uh, births in this house. I'm thankful to the Lord for the babies that are born during this quarantine season. And one of the families wrote to me and said, Pastor, we are so blessed with the community that we have. Their, their families could not come, you know. Their parents live overseas, and they couldn't come and be with them in this time. But who came and stepped in? Brothers and sisters in community. Hallelujah. That is why I love the family of God. Why? Because we have a family that goes beyond this earthly, life, this earthly lifetime. Listen to me carefully. Your relationship with your wife will end one day. Your relationship with your parents will end one day. But your relationship with your faith family will continue into eternity. Hallelujah. That is why you and I, we need to value this community that God has placed us. And here Paul, Solomon writes and he says, there is a wisdom in living in community. There's a wisdom in placing yourself in community. And when you're in community, don't compete. 
complete one another. Don't compete. And this is where he says, I want to give you four things that I observe here in this passage. In work, he says, two are better than one. Verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. In work, there is a better productivity. You know, every leader, can I speak to all the leaders, all the pastors that are watching us? One of the most important jobs that you and I do is raise a team. Why? Because we can't do alone. There is no, no superman in ministry. We need each other. We need the complementarian gifts to come together. And we need that teamwork. And when the team comes together to work, there is a synergy. So every leader's job is to raise highly performing teams, high performance teams. That means these guys are not just doing one thing, but they can do a lot of things, but they are performing at a higher capacity together. And when you put a team like that, you can win the world. You and I, we need to raise that bar. Synergy, there is a partnership, there is a productivity that comes together. Many of them ask, how do you do ministry as a couple? My wife and I, we are very, very, uh, we are very wired, very similar. You know, we are both uh, high D personalities, high I personalities. That means we are very dominant as well as very, um, we, 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 we lead people, basically. And we are very strongly opinionated. So how? Oh, thank God for a woman that loves the Lord and knows how to submit and how to come and give grace. And, and both of us, we mutually submit to one another. And I always jokingly say this, we do a beautiful teamwork. I'm the team, she's the work. And if you're in Life Church, you know, she does all the hard work. I only do the good parts. And I'm thankful to the Lord for that compliment that complementarian view that we take in terms of tapping into the gifts of each other and to learn to flow together. That's the beautiful part. Now, if you're outside of our church family, you would not know the relationship my wife and I have. The relationship my wife and I have, it's very strange and wonderful. I'm strange, she's wonderful. But this is the beautiful part. God has brought these two United Nations together, a Chinese and an Indian together, so that he can do the work of God through us and in us. And I'm thankful to the Lord. I love my wife. My wife loves me, and I love her so much. Our hearts are knitted together. But I tell you what, that partnership, there has to be no element of competition, but an element of completion and cooperation. That is where even a marriage will succeed. That's why you can handle raising a young family and still serve the Lord through that process. You can raise a young family, still church plant, and go through the headache of church planting. I tell you this, church, when you have a healthy marriage, it is because there is no competition but a sense of completion. You complement one another. Cooperate together. Hallelujah. And this is important for us to understand. The second thing he says here is this. In support, there is a better partnership. Verse 10, if they fall... One will lift him up, but woe to him who is alone. And when he falls, he has not another to lift him up. In other words, if you're alone by yourself, you have no one to lift you up. It's not that whether you, would, you, would, whether you fall or don't fall. You will fall. That's what he says here. When he falls. He didn't say if he falls. He says when you fall. In other words, you will fall. So you're not invincible. You need grace. That's why you need a team, a community to walk together. Thirdly, he says a better position. Look at this, in comfort. 
In verse 11, he says, again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? You know, there's a Swedish proverb that says, shared joy is double joy. And shared sorrow is half a sorrow. Beautiful. You need someone to open your life and share it with. Praise God. That's why we love community in Life Church. One of the things, finally, he says in verse 12, in protection, they have better protection. What is it? Though a man may prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A cord of three is not quickly broken. Now, two will withstand. Now, what is a cord of three? Have you ever seen, um, you know, growing up in India, when I go to the villages, I have seen them uh, taking the uh, coconut, uh, the hair of the coconut, you know, uh, all that. And then they, they, weave, they put it together and they make threads. And then they make layers of thread. And then the thread, each strand has to be woven together so that a cord of three is very strong. Four is useless because it doesn't create the right pattern when you, when you do it. Two is too weak. Three is the right amount. And Solomon, even there, he observes nature and he says, it's right, the cord of three will not be easily broken. That means there is a community. Between a husband and a wife, what's the third party? Can I humbly say, the third party is the Lord. We bring him into our mix. In our community, it is having an additional person speaking into our lives. Someone who can check in on you. I want to ask every man in this house, do you keep yourself accountable? To whom do you speak? To who can your wife call? When you're misbehaving, who can she call and say, come, my husband is misbehaving. And that, someone who can call, that party, that third fold is very strong. You and I, we need to come with that sense of accountability, a sense of unity together. But when you want to live in community like this, do you know, you cannot, you cannot live in a community unless you work together well. Story was told of a family that had a huge cornfield. And one day in that acres and acres of cornfield, one day their little girl and the little boy in their household was playing and the boy was chasing the girl, and the girl ran into the cornfield. And she must have panicked, and she kept running in the wrong direction. So she didn't come home in the evening. So the parents called all the neighbors, and they said, let's form uh, teams. Just go and look for where is this little girl, because she can't survive the cold. She has asthma. So they ran, and they were frantically searching all over the cornfield. After hours and hours of searching, they couldn't find her. Then suddenly someone said, guys, let's unite our hands together and form a straight line and then comb the entire cornfield. And when they formed a straight line, held each other's hands and combed the entire field, they found the girl, but the girl was already frozen to death. Right there, one person turned to everyone and said, I wish we had held hands and worked together from the beginning. I want you to say this, this is important, unity. When you want to live in a community, it is not competing with one another, but it's completing each other by working together in unity. That is life under the hand of God. God calls us, he invites us. But you know, you and I, for, to do that, we need humility. And that is where the rest of the text is. I want you to go with me to one last text in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 13 to 16. You find this Solomon is actually writing about an old king. Verse 13, the Bible says, Better was a poor 
and wise youth. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 13 and verse 16. Better was a poor and a wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Just finish off with this verse because the rest of the verses, it's talking about the same thing about the king. But in because of time, I'll finish with this one verse. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. He contrasts between a poor and wise youth. Why is that youth wise? Because he knows how to take advice. He's still teachable. And then he says, an old and foolish king. Why is he foolish? He's not foolish because he's incompetent. He's not foolish because he's stupid. He's foolish because he failed to take advice anymore. In other words, in life, he doesn't want to listen to anybody. He's already arrived and he is now everything. The judge, the jury, the counselor, everything is him. And he says, the one who no longer knew how to take advice, he is a foolish king. The rest of the passage, he actually explains. There was no end, verse 16, to all the people of whom he led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Can I humbly say this? The two wisdom that he shares with us, cooperation is better than competition. Contentment is better than contention. Learn to develop contentment. Secondly, that's the wisdom of contentment. Secondly, the wisdom of community. Learn to live in community. But how can you live in community? Only if you know how to live in harmony. No wonder the Paul in the New Testament always says, in all things, walk in humility. See, the old king doesn't have the humility to learn anymore. Just because you're old doesn't necessarily mean you're wise. You know, in, in, in the Chinese proverb is like this, I've eaten more salt than you have eaten rice. The old folks like to tell that to the young people. But can I humbly say this? No matter how old you are, you and I, we still need the wisdom of God. That's why at the heart level, we need to have humility of heart. We need to consider each other better. And Paul writes here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 to 3, I therefore, a prisoner from the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I want you to listen to me carefully. I'm a pastor who loves community and I'm thankful to the Lord that God has given us a loving church family where we value Christ and the wisdom he brings, where we value the word of God and we want to anchor and build our life upon the word of God. So I love all the uncles and aunties we have in this house. I love all the brothers and sisters we have in this house. I love them as dearly as my own family. You know why? For the gospel's sake, I left my own family in India. For the gospel's sake, I left my father, my mother, my brother, my sister, but God in his grace gave me a hundredfold here. I value, I treasure them. The young people, I look at them as my spiritual children. And to my surprise sometimes, even the old folks in our church sometimes say, you are spiritually fathering us. Thank you for being my spiritual father. 
Age is not the one that dictates how we learn in this community. You know what dictates? The grace of God, the anointing of God, the calling of God. That's why can I humbly say this in community, what we need is not a drivenness. What we need is a sense of calling. I'm going to finish by saying this. I want you to know as a pastor, I'm a very driven man. My wife is a very driven lady. I'm a very driven man. But it's not the drivenness that drive us to do what we do. Because years ago, we went before God and we said, Lord, help us to die to ourselves." And God, through the necessary journeys of our life, helped us to die to ourselves, die to our drivenness. But instead of drivenness, you know what we have now? A sense of calling and a sense of destiny. That's why we do what we do. It is not because out of drivenness, drivenness for success, drivenness for significance, or drivenness to be better. No, no, no. We do what we do with a sense of calling and a sense of destiny. That's why we do it for the audience of one. In this house, we have a saying, it's not how many, it is what kind. The reason why we say that is because we don't worry about how many are watching us, how many are listening to this, how many, no, no, what we care about is are we doing the will of God? Are we fulfilling the destiny that he has for us? Will God be glorified in this endeavor? That's why we do the ministry for the audience of one and we do it for his glory and for the good of his kingdom. And that comes out of a sense of calling, not a sense of drivenness. Apostle Paul is a very driven man, but yet his drivenness was not from a sense of competition or compulsiveness or covetousness, but rather it's a sense of calling and a sense of destiny. Can I humbly say this? I invite you into a journey not to live under the sun in a materialistic driven society, but live under the hand of God with a sense of kingdom orientation, with a sense of calling upon your life and live a life in cooperation in a community and with contentment in your heart, live a life of godliness. Hallelujah. Every head bow, every eye close all across this place. If you're joining us from somewhere and you have never placed your faith in Christ, the things that I've talked about, the only way you can truly come out of the rat race, the only way you can truly come out of that state of being driven by society, being driven by covetousness and compulsiveness and, and, and competition, the only way is when you give your life to God. Because he will take your life. He will forgive you of your sin. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And he will give you a new heart with a new desires to live for his glory. And when you come under his provision, he takes hold of your life and he says, I'll provide for you. You don't have to be running around. You will not miss out on anything. You won't miss out. Because life under the hand of God God becomes your provider. God becomes your protector. God becomes the one who fulfills the plan and the purpose that he has for you. You will never miss out. You and I, we need to come place our faith in God. This morning, wherever you're watching us from, you have never placed your faith in Christ Jesus. You have never given your life to him. Can I humbly say this? 
no matter what you're going through, whether you're one of those things that are listed in the past, in the, in the previous, in, in my sermon, the tears of the oppressed, the one who's going through divorce or going through persecution, going through a domestic violence experience, going through whatever painful situation, and you say, I'm being oppressed and I don't have anyone to comfort me. Today, turn to him. He's a mighty deliverer. He will become your avenger because he says, I'm vengeance is mine. He's a God who can take and deal with things on your behalf. Come give your life to him. Give your heart and give your life to him this morning. And you do not know how to do it. I'll lead you in a prayer. But can I encourage you right after the service, we actually have a forum where you can meet with somebody online and they will lead you in a time of prayer. It's called welcome.idmc.com.au. If you go to that web, that web page, you will have the, props, the proper uh, instructions there to follow and they will connect with you and pray with you. But let me lead you in a time of prayer now. Just close your eyes and lift your hands and say this after me. Heavenly Father, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on my behalf and to pay the price for my forgiveness. Today I acknowledge that Jesus is my Lord, that Jesus is my Savior, that he died for me. I give my life to him. I want to live for your glory. Teach me each day and guide me, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, sincerely believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth, the Bible says you will be saved. But can I speak to people who have made that decision already, who are followers of Christ? Can I humbly say this? Don't be caught up in a rat race. Don't be caught up in a materialistic, consumeristic society. You are called to live under the hand of God where God becomes your provider. You have been called for a purpose. You've been redeemed for a purpose. Live life with that eternity in mind. But can I also speak to my own church family? During this season, I want you to value and treasure the community that God has placed you in. The church family he has placed you in. Treasure the brothers and sisters with whom you have the privilege of doing life together. So work in unity. But pastor, I've been hurt by people. Can I humbly say this? In a community, you will have all these things happening. But you know what you need to do? The bad that people do to you, write on sand. Because someone can come and rub it away. But the good that people do to you, carve it on a stone so that you'll always remember there are many good that has been done to you. So don't look at the things that didn't happen and feel disheartened. Value, treasure the families, treasure what God has given you. Even after this service, I want you to text your life groups. Maybe call a few of those people and say, you know, I really love and thank God for you being in my life. And I want you to know that you're as spiritual father and spiritual mother over this house, my wife and I, we pray for you every single day by name. And we are believing and trusting that God will do his perfect will in our midst in this season. We love you. 
Shall we pray before the Lord? Hallelujah. Thank you for listening to our message. We pray that God's word spoke to your heart and gave you an inspiration and encouragement. If you are truly blessed by this, would you take a moment to leave a comment or give us a rating on the Apple podcast service? Not only that, take an opportunity to share this on social media platforms so others who are in similar situations may be encouraged with the Word of God. We love you. If you want to connect with our church, go to connect.idmc.com.au and share with us where you're from, what you're doing, so that we can keep you in our prayers before the Lord. God bless you. 